to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Titus, chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me. We'll be reading beginning in verse 10, and we'll be reading through chapter 2. So Titus, chapter 1, verse 10 all the way through to chapter 2, verse 15. Now I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. But in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who, I- that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. We have been working our way through a trilogy of accusations or uh, descriptions, really, of false teachers in the book of Jude, of their impact upon God's people. Remember that these are individuals who have crept in unawares, and that's been our focus. How do they come in without us knowing it? If they're how, how, if they're so obviously wrong, why are we asleep and letting them penetrate the church uh, without recognizing it? And again, we have 
taken the time to delve into how that happens in our own society. And it has disrupted us a little bit, I hope, in thinking, well, we weren't very discerning in thinking this was something good, when in fact, it has been used by Satan to bring the very things described here in the book of Jude. And so we are on the second one, and that is that we are rejecting authority. That by this, false teachers not only reject authority themselves, but lead others to reject authority. We have already looked at two seeds that are planted by uh, Satan and those who have him as their father among men. And we find that they are amongst us, that the biblical references and the biblical descriptions where rebellion against authority has swelled up and reared its head in some uh, of the most dramatic ways uh, have these elements there, and they are the same elements that we see here. The first seed of rejecting authority that we talked about is that we are equal to those in authority over us, whether it be equal to God, whether it be equal to my husband, whether it be equal to to the spiritual authorities in my life, whether it be equal to any other authority, my, to my teacher, to my whoever, my parent, that I bring myself and elevate myself to uh, equality with them. And we make that sound very good, and our founding fathers swallowed that hook, line, and sinker, and they perpetrated it upon us uh, that uh, we are all created equal, and it has been ingrained in us, but when we look through Scripture, we see that as one of the very powerful seeds of rebellion, perhaps the most, one of the first most powerful scene, uh, aspects, where we elevate ourselves and in our arrogance we think that we can challenge authority indiscriminately, that we become the measure, and that we rule ourselves rather than being called upon to submit the, to, to the rule that God has placed over us through not only himself, uh, but also through various other authorities, both within the family, the church, and governments. The second seed that we saw was the seed of discontentment, of being dissatisfied with authority over us, of finding fault and of, and of rejecting it out of that and thinking that we deserve better, that uh, we find that recorded for us over and over again in Scripture, this element of discontentment. There were seeds of discontentment are planted that very soon out of that discontent, uh, and though you surround them by all benevolence, out of, uh, you can still plant seeds of discontent. Don't think that the only way to plant seeds of discontent is in people who have nothing. In fact, it is much easier to make discontent people who have everything. And that's what's gone on. Uh, why do we have the social upheaval that we're having right now that is really reminiscent of the 60s and 70s and uh, maybe even back in the 50s? Why do we have all this racial tension going on? I thought that was resolved a long time ago. Well, we planted seeds of discontent. And it fomates into rebellion. I deserve more. That's all you have to convince people of. You are deserving of more, and you will have very soon thereafter 
a level of discontentment that draws forward rebellion, to reject authority, to stick it to the man, the 1%, whoever it is. It doesn't, however you want to designate it, we identify them as the enemy. They are the ones that are making us discontent and forgetting that it is those that are behind us, not in front of us, that we are antagonistic towards that have really sown discontent in our hearts. There's one example of that. Remember that Jude talks about three spheres of examples. Um, earlier on, he talked about uh, Israel in the wilderness, and we've studied that. We talked about the angels who left their abode. We, I skipped that last week. He also talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, that is society at large, uh, and uh, the unbelieving community, and we've touched on that. Uh, but I really skipped last week the idea of discontentment among angels, and I want to revisit it because of what I just said. Discontentment is not reserved for those who do not have, but for those who have everything. They are the easiest to be made discontent. Here are the angels in the presence of God himself who have the opportunity to minister and serve in the midst of his glory, who are perfect beings who you say, what do they have to be discontent about? And yet we find welling up inside not only Lucifer but the others uh, and we've saw, we saw three classifications of those fallen angels, Lucifer being his own class, uh, that I want to be like God. I have everything else, but God has something I want to be like him. Where does he get the idea that he wants to be like God? And I would consent, contend, as I had in the previous weeks, contended that it is from the creation of man. That indeed, Satan's arrival into the Garden of Eden was his act of rebellion. It was his attempt to become like God. And similarly, those who left their abode and dwelt among men and had children that created the Nephilim, the giants of the land, that what were they missing? They wanted something they didn't have, that you have. The men were created in the image of God. In the likeness of, they, we are like God differently than the angels. And the angels recognize that and they wanted it. I, wanna, I want that, but it's not what God has given you. You see how discontentment comes upon those who have everything. Because all it takes is one thing we don't have. And I'm discontent. It explains David wanting Bathsheba when he had all these wives already. And that's what Nathan confronts him with. You know, this guy has all these sheep and he takes the guy's one sheep. Why? Well, it's one I don't have. Satan wants you to look around at what you don't have. Instead of having you glorify God by what you do have. That's always how he creates discontentment. And that's why when you look for the most contented people on the planet, you aren't going to come to America. We are some of the most discontented people on the planet. 
And that's why I go to some of these impoverished nations and I say, they are just happier. And they have so much less. And we go, how could they live that way? I could never live like that. Because you have been trained in discontentment. And so there's a third seed that we want to talk about that brings us to rebelling against authority. To not only rebel against it, but to reject it. Say, I want nothing to do with that authority because I'm equal to it. Because I deserve more than what they've given me. And this third area, this third seed that brings us to the rejecting of authority is not the authority that you often think of in terms of your boss or your husband or your pastor or your parents. This is an authority that um, isn't really a person. And it is the authority of God's word. So when you read the idea of rejecting authority, we often think of those individuals, people who are in authority, beginning with God and working our way right down to, the more, to, to all the authorities in our life. Uh, and it's easy to think in those terms, but there is also authority that is not a person. It is living. It is active. The Bible says the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than two-edged sword. But it is not a person, but it is a great gift of God, and that is the Word of God, the Scriptures. That when we begin to question them and undermine them, that we are ultimately bringing ourselves eventually to the rejection of the authoritative truth of God's Word. And throughout the pastoral epistles, and that's not only Paul's pastoral epistles, but also in Jude and in, and in Peter, Uh, you're going to find, as well as the letters to Timothy and Titus, you're going to find overwhelmingly the call of senior pastors to young pastors, and by young it's like 40, um, younger pastors, I used to kind of go cringe at that, but now that I'm well over 40, I'm like, yeah, they're young pastors. Um, Commit yourself to the Word of God. Rejecting authority an error is seeded by false teachers by simply bringing into doubt some of God's word. And is this last, it's not the last, it's the last I'm going to cover. It's the third seed of rejecting authority that we're going to cover together. Before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you. For your love for us, we thank you again for your word before us and your spirit within us. And we pray that he might have liberty to move and work in a powerful manner uh, in our midst, in our hearts, in our minds, convincing us and convicting us. Lord, we want your truth to come forward in purity. And Lord, we thank you that that can be accomplished, not by the will of men, but by your work. And so we pray that you might have the preeminence here now. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've, I could have selected again, just like in many of these studies, a number of passages very easily. Uh, and uh, when I go through and I 
look at my notes from seminary and college and some of my doctrinal studies as well, some of the things I've written uh, because of assignments there, I notice that whenever it gets to the authority of Scripture, many of the passages we're quoting are out of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.21, things like that. We, we and those are the verses that we are trained to know as pastors and to throw out there over and over again, as well as some of the declarations of our Lord uh, to his disciples, uh, built, building on the idea of the authority of God's word. And so how do you do ministry? Well, you do ministry by focusing your attention not on the enemy, but on the truth, on God's word. And uh, out of all of those, I wanted to focus in on Titus because it includes several aspects that um, are indicative of several others. It doesn't have all of them, none of them are complete. Uh, you really need to do a full study of multiple passages to get that full picture. But I want to begin here in Titus. I want to begin by, uh, again, reminding you how does this undermining the authority of God's word creep into churches unnoticed. Remember, that's the description. They crept in unnoticed. And Paul overwhelmingly calls upon these young pastors to be alert to the fact that there are false teachers coming in. How are they creeping in? And over and over again, they use the same terminology. And so the terminology includes several things. One of them we've already somewhat studied, and that is the traditions of men. That they have replaced or supplanted. It's not that they have ripped God's word out of the soil of your heart, but they've kind of pushed it to the side and planted around it, and by the very roots of those teachings, choked God's authority in your life, in your heart, and that is by the traditions of men. And we have studied that uh, in the past, and, and I don't know how much time we need to take into that, but it is very obvious that we insert our traditions, and we, we studied this extensively. We talked about some of the other immorality that they introduce, but uh, the perversity that they bring in. But they teach as traditions of men, or as, as the laws of God, the traditions of men. They, they supplant them. They plant them right beside it and choke this one out. And pretty soon, this one is taking, getting second service, and the one that is getting primary attention are the traditions of men, and how easy it is to do that, uh, to simply say, well, we're going to keep you from breaking, this is the Jewish mentality, we call them hedge laws, to keep you from breaking the law, we're going to create this law, so that if you don't break this law, you could never break that law. And pretty soon, this rule, which is made up by men, becomes more important than that rule. Well, now, because this rule has become so important, a rule of men, not the law of God, now we don't want to break that one, and we're so concerned about breaking this rule, we better have another rule out here. So that you don't break that rule, so if you don't break that rule, then you won't break the law. And it just kept getting hedgerow after hedgerow after hedgerow of traditions of men. To the point that if you walk too far on Sunday, you broke the law. And you're guilty. And they would penalize you.
This is the work of the traditions of men, claiming the good thing of guarding you from the law, from breaking the law of God. Does it sound like a good proposal? Sure it does. Yeah, you know, to keep us from breaking the Sabbath, let's just create a set of rules, a set of covenants that we're not going to break this, and then we'll know that we're not in danger of breaking the Sabbath. Uh, let's just set these rules up. And, and men have done this not just in Judaism. They've done it in Christianity as well. Uh, and in every form of Christianity across the board, they've all done it. We, 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 we try to encircle God's word with our traditions under the guise of protecting us from breaking the word of God. And what we end up doing is strangling the word of God from being effectual in people's lives. Because what we're trying to do by the traditions of men is replace a very important element of the Christian life. His name is Holy Spirit. We're trying to be Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to lead, guide us into all truth. That's the Bible. That's God's word. And that by his work of convincing us of its truth and of convicting us when we break it, that we walk in the Spirit. But these men come along and say, no, can't trust Holy Spirit to guide you into truth. You need us. And can't trust the Holy Spirit because people aren't responsive to the Holy Spirit. These rules or covenants are much more effectual in accomplishing that. And so walk in our traditions and you'll keep the word of God. Not walk in the Spirit, walk in our traditions. And that has encompassed Christianity on many bases, uh, many places. Um, in Geneva, Switzerland, back in the day, um, our friend John Calvin, not so friendly, John Calvin, uh, did that for the whole city. And man, he was king of Geneva. And, and, and yeah, they were stoning children to death for disobeying their parents. He had set up, set up a strict law. His whole idea is I'm going to bring the kingdom of God on earth. And he did it through law. Not God's law, his laws, the traditions of men. And so we teach the truths of God as they come from God's word, and we guard ourselves from adding to them traditions of men and from adding to them a human element to enforce them. And so we read through God's word and we see something and we say, well, that's not really how I live. Um, and we just skip it and we say, well, that's cultural. You've never heard me teach that in decades. If you've been here decades. Because it's wrong. Especially when those passages relate all the way back to Adam was formed first, then Eve. I mean, how can you make that cultural? And so we go through and we read the scriptures and we say, well, that's not really cultural. That's a, 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 
Husbands, love your wives. Live with them with understanding uh, that you are to lead your homes. That's not a cultural issue. I don't care when we became uh, uh, liberalized families. Um, doesn't change it. And I love that in the midst of this passage in Titus, what do we find Paul saying, out of the authority of God's word, what are you going to teach? How are old men supposed to behave? How are old women supposed to behave? How are young women supposed to behave? How are young men supposed to behave? And in each and every one of them, you'll find the word reverently, soberly. You know, reverently means, means I'm going to live recognizing and esteeming others better than myself. Put in the terms of Philippians. Reverently, we often associate with God that I'm going to live reverently, that I'm going to be in subjection and, and obedience to God. But look at how many times in this declaration it talks about sober and reverent. Verse 2 of chapter 2 of Titus. Older men be sober, reverent. There it is. Verse 3. Older women, that you be reverent in behavior. And what are you going to teach the young women to do? To love their husband, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Young men, be sober-minded. And right down there at the end of verse 7, reverence, right after showing integrity. Reverence. Bond servants, be obedient. And again, this whole idea of being reverential, that you are going to uh, revere others instead of just lifting up and exalting yourself. It is humbling yourself. You cannot revere others until you've humbled yourself. Well, what am I humbling myself to? I'm humbling myself to truth, to God's truth, to God's authority. And so in comes the world says, no, you got you to gotta revere or, or submit yourself to the traditions of men. And... I love what Paul tells Titus. You've got to shut those people's mouths. You have just got to put a plug in that spewing of error. And so there's no form of legalism that can produce the righteousness of God within men. It is the work of God's word being wielded by God's spirit in a reverent heart. And if you'll notice, I can't do any of those. Can't change your heart, can't do the work of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not the producer of truth. God does those works. We communicate truth from his word, we keep to it, and we recognize I need to be obedient to it. I need to be obedient to this. I need to be obedient. I read this and I can say, well, we don't do that. Well, if that's the case, you need to come talk to me. If you've read something in God's word that instructs the church to do this and we're not doing it, come talk to me. I'll probably agree with you. And I'll just kind of shake my head. I'm like, well, I've taught it, but nobody wants to do it. Because we don't revere the authority of God's word over us. To actually tell us how to dress, how to talk, how to work, how to live. We don't recognize it. 
not just in the Old Testament. I'm talking about New Testament instructions, just like we have in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Well, 1 through 14, 13. A very careful description saying this is what you need to teach people, how to live a reverent life. Now, does it say that you're going to make them live a reverent life? No, verse 1 says, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Now, you would imagine that after saying something about sound doctrine, that the next list you would hear would be, you know, that uh, the Bible is the word of God, that God is triune, all-powerful, all-knowing, all this, that there is uh, Jesus Christ, that there is a Trinity, that there, you know, that there is the Holy Spirit, that salvation by grace through faith. No, he doesn't, that's not where Paul begins the list. He begins the list with, this is how people should be living. If you claim God's word as your authority, you claim to be a child of God, you're going to have sound doctrine, that sound doctrine is in righteous and godly living. And he characterizes it differently for these four categories of people within the church, really five categories if you include the bondservants. All based upon God's word. The second area. So the first area is the traditions of men that we have to be wary of. And they're easy to bring in. They're easy to start saying uh, and we have done it. I've told you, we've done this in covenants. We've done this in legalistic settings where we just say, this is the, the way you, that, that we're not going to let you in the door if you don't do this. You're going to have to wear, you know, instead of letting the Holy Spirit work in the hearts through the proclaimed truth of God to conform themselves and their conscience to righteousness. Whether it looks exactly like my life looks like isn't relevant Questions, does it look like what God's word describes? And by the way, there is another list in here for pastors and deacons, distinct from this list in Titus, for older men, older women, young women, and younger men, and bond servants. The second element that comes into the church unawares is described here in Titus as um, and I'm looking at verse 14 not giving heed to Jewish fables in Timothy Paul talks about wives fables and others describe, uh, and we have this throughout in Galatians and Peter and, and uh, in our Lord's instructions as well. We keep coming back to these fables, uh, this idea of, of uh, fictions. <laughs> a fable is just fiction, right? It's a, it's a lie. We dress it up pretty and we call it a fable. And we say it has a moral value to it, right? Isn't that what a fables are? They're supposed to... They're fictional stories with moral values. Um, and, uh, uh, and we all enjoy listening to them, don't we? We all enjoy reading them. We read them to our kids, you know, three little pigs. You see, you shouldn't have a house made out of grass. You should have one makes out of bricks um, and not out of sticks. And by the way, if you want to know what that is all about, it's about don't build like Americans, build like Europeans. 
They all built out of rocks. We built out of wood. Ours burned down. Theirs don't. Okay? So you always thought that you were the wise pig, didn't you? But your house is built out of wood. That sticks. You're the second pig. Okay? Just let, let you know. This, it was against you that they had that little fable. Where was I? All right, so we all like those, right? We all, and, they're, and they're catchy, and they get into our brain, and we think that they are truth, and, and, we, and we think, uh, well, that's a great story, but it's not the Bible. And I love the passages that they are cleverly devised fables. That is, these aren't just the, the I didn't do that lie of you, know, you catch your kid when they get caught. I didn't do it when you just caught them doing it. It's not that kind of a lie. These are cleverly devised fables. And the Jews had them. Wives have them. Um, in, in Timothy, the, the uh, society has them. Uh, in fact, we have this wonderful piece of work called Aesop's Fables, right? You guys ever read Aesop's Fables? Do you read? Okay, I, you know, read Aesop's Fables, and I remember in school having to read Aesop's Fables, and we all had to pick a fable to give a report on to everyone else, which I didn't understand because we all had to read them, so. But I did it anyway, because I had to do, because you don't rebel against your teacher. You just do what they're told to do. And mine was about the fox, so you have to read Aesop's Fables, and you find one about the fox, and you'll find one. Moral stories. You know what the problem with moral stories is? They have no power. You're trying to teach moral living without Jesus Christ. And it will fail always. Always it will fail. Why are we so morally destitute today as a nation? Because about 60 years ago, 55 years ago to be precise, we told schools, do not teach from the premise of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Stop teaching that way. Cease. They made it against the law to teach morality from a Judeo-Christian ethic. That is, from a standard. This is not been five years ago, ten. This is 55 years ago. I have the privilege of being born on the day it happened. So that's why I know exactly how many years it's been. June 1962. Get it out of our schools. Prior to that, did you know you went to school and one of the primary reading things you had was the Gospel of John in public schools in Dallas, Texas? Because we understood that morality needs to come from an authority. But you see, the Jews had cut off the authority of God's word. They had inserted in its place these fables and try to teach a moral standard that did not have a basis in the authority of absolute truth. 
Rabbi so-and-so says this little story, and it's to teach us, and Rabbi so-and-so, and Rabbi so-and-so, and Rabbi so-and-so. And, of course, you've got to come up with some pretty good stories to keep people's attention, right? Where they fall asleep and they don't come back or whatever. And so these rabbis competed over who told good stories. You might say, well, isn't that what Jesus did? He comes in and didn't he teach moral stories? He's taught about the kingdom of God is like. And he uses these not as moral stories, but actually not to direct people into truth, but to hide it from them. So that only those who recognize the authority of God's word go, oh yeah. Now the Jewish leaders knew, I'm pretty sure he spoke that against us. Several times they said that, I'm pretty sure, I, I, I think people are laughing at us because of what he just said. I think that was directed against us. And they gnashed their teeth, instead of surrendering. But all of them are premised upon the authority that Jesus Christ carried himself. What did everyone say when he showed up to teach? This man speaks with authority. Because he is what I am not. He's the son of God. He has the authority. I don't. So I have to speak by the authority of God's word. Now, is it okay to use illustrations and things like that? Yes, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about replacing the authority of God to bring moral living with the fables, the moral stories of man. And you cannot do it. And so he talks about wives' fables. And fables, remember, are just dressed-up lies. So why should you work hard? Why should you be diligent in your workplace? Why should you get up every morning and go through the rigors of being disciplined, of getting up and going to work and, and coming home tired every day, day after day after day? Why should you do that? Well, according to the fable of the tortoise and the hare, in the end you'll win. Just keep plodding along. You know what? I have not found any young people believe that from the tortoise and the hare story. They want it fast, they want it done, and the computer age has even made it worse. I should be rich by the time I'm 23, I should be a millionaire by then, I should be a multimillionaire and own my own corporation, not just business, corporation by the time I'm 30, and this is the fast track, and I'm going to do it by playing video games the whole way through. But God's word teaches not through fables, but by direct instruction. Be diligent. If a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. So we have all of these stories that we want to listen to. And boy, we, and they're entertaining. I acknowledge, they're entertaining. And when I sit there and read a list like, be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, and love, and patience. Um, you're, you're zoned out about when I get to about the second or third word. But as soon as we start telling a story, oh, 
hang on every word. So yes, they're entertaining and it's captivating for our attention, but there is no power behind it. And so he talks about these two mechanisms that they use to make people have a distaste for God's word. They replace it with the commandments of men. They then entertain you away from truth, serious, absolute truth that is worth the study and energy to memorize and replace it with these fables that are nice to learn and we can, and they flow off your tongue very easily and they're very entertaining. I am fascinated by the constant references when I, even around my dinner table it's that way, how we uh, quote certain parts of certain movies and I'm as guilty as anyone um, you'll know that every Sunday, every meal, I tell my kids, you know, pour the drink, set the table, wind the frog. And if you don't know where that comes from, just bless yourself, okay? Don't try to figure it out. Uh, my kids all know where it comes from. And it's from a movie. It's not from the Bible. And boy, we can run those off like this and all kind of, because we have that common foundation. Oh, that we would quote scripture that way, with that kind of enjoyment, that kind of a smile, instead of having and feeling like we've been browbeat because they quote scripture at us. Think about that. I quote scripture at you, you think you're being browbeaten. I quote a movie to you, and you think, oh, that's fun. Do you see what fables do to the word of God? in the mind of men. And yet they have no power. Oh, they're cute, they're entertaining, they're attractive. But what do they do for us? They can do nothing. Except for this one thing. They teach us to disregard the Bible as an absolute truth, to reject its authority in our life. These are the words of life. And when, this, when the, whoever wrote the song says, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life, they're out of this book. That we can walk around and say these things and smile instead of feeling like, Oh, I'm being pounded on with God's word. No, smile. Are they serious? Yes. And what do we notice in this list? Be sober, be sober, be sober, be reverent. Where's the fun in all of that? There is joy in all of that. And shame on the world for thinking that reverence is not enjoyable. That sober-mindedness isn't fulfilling. We're not talking about somber-mindedness, by the way, okay? Don't put the M in there. It is sober-minded, not somber-minded. Somber-minded goes, uh, and you guys know that's just not me normally. Well, it's more and more me lately because I'm hurting all over the place. Don't ever, ever, ever get as old as me, Okay? Because it hurts. It's too late, John. Is that what you said? Too late. (laughs) 
God's word has the authority. But don't view it in such a negative fashion that when you quote it, you gotta have a you have to have a frown on your face. It is not somberness we're after, it is soberness. It is realizing this is so important, it is worth quoting to one another on a regular basis. And when Paul says, sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts, let that joy come out. Sing it. Say it. Quote it. And don't browbeat people with it. Lift people up with God's word. It's okay. (laughs) It can be used that way. It should be used that way. For these are wonderful words of life. They have the power that fables never will have. They can transform our lives from misery to joy, from rebellion to reverence, from evil to good. from strife to peace. These are the words that we need to quote to each other and to sing to each other and to dwell on, to think on, and to revel in. And that's why we keep having our children memorize God's word. We want them to read it. We want them to memorize it. And that's why you should be leading the way and doing exactly that. That as our children in our children's club are memorizing Matthew chapter 5, so should the rest of us. Because I think almost every other verse, for many verses in a row, start off with the word blessed. Blessed are. Blessed are. And you don't supposed to say those verses by blessed are the poor in spirit. Or blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh no. That's how the world wants you to view God's word. They want you to reject the authority of it. And so what are they going to paint it as? They're going to paint it as something boring. They're going to paint it as something that's always negative. They're going to paint it as so holy that you don't want to get close to breaking it, so we're going to pay attention and follow the traditions of men. This is what the world wants to do to God's word because they want you to reject its authority. They will challenge it, challenge it, and challenge it. And yes, when I say challenge God's word, you think of people come out and say, this isn't true. And that is going, that is happening. I don't deny that. There, is, there are those out there that are rejecting it and declaring, and they'll make statements, the Bible contains the word of God. It's not, it, it is not the word of God. It contains, somewhere in here is the word of God. You get to decide, I get to decide. And yes, there are those elements in doctrinal circles that are extracting things. And when I go to Bible help things and they challenge the six days of creation as six little days and they challenge the crossing of the Red Sea and they challenge the universal flood and they challenge those things. Yes, those are all out assaults on the God's word and pretty much we would recognize that. If I stood up here and started teaching that, you would be up in arms and rightly so. 
But you notice that I didn't list that as the seeds of rejecting the authority of God's word. And neither did Paul. Peter does. He talks about, they say, things are always are the way they've always been. And, uh, and thus, God's never going to judge the earth. Because he didn't create it either. But notice what Paul focuses on. Traditions of men being taught as the laws of God. And fables. Jewish fables, wise fables, pick your fable. Fables. So you draw your attention to the stories instead of to the truth. And now God's word's authority is gone. And so we have this seed. And yes, to some degree, all of us are guilty of allowing it to be planted amongst us. And so we need to be reminded of God's word. That the greatest blasphemy of the word that we are warned of in Titus is not because you reject the flood narrative. It is because you do not live a chaste life before your husband. Read it. It's there. That's how you blaspheme God's word. It's by living like the world. It's by rejecting authority blasphemes God's word because God's word describes the authorities in our life and I got to tell you that they're precious they're valuable they are treasures for us the authorities that are there not to be knuckled under because God says we have to or pastor says I need to but rather that I treasure the authorities that are over me God Christ My boss, my parents, husband, pastor, whoever, whatever those authorities are in my life, I treasure them. For they are for my benefit, my good. Yesterday on the radio, maybe it was Friday, the radio, I guess it was Friday. Heard someone, everyone getting all excited. Because for the first time in a long time, we have a president that set aside of National Day of Prayer for the people in South Texas. By proclamation, I believe he made the proclamation on Friday or Thursday, one or the other, that he by proclamation made today the day of prayer. And everyone was excited and applauding that. And I'm okay with that. Um, we pray every Sunday. so <laughs> We prayed last Sunday for the people in Houston there. We'll pray this Sunday. and We'll pray regularly for one another. But in the back of it all was this thing of, we know the other presidents didn't do that. 
And so in the midst of rejoicing at one, we chide another authority. And that isn't godly. The Bible calls us to certainly identify evil when it is there. But in the, the place of authority, we always address it as it ought to, with reverence. For to do otherwise, to blaspheme God's word. The ultimate authority that on your lap. That, for there is truth. And while we subvert it, and we see it in society, and we go, oh, that's horrible, on Christian radio, it is subtly also being subverted. For we will gladly respond to this instruction from this president that we like, but if it's an instruction we don't like from a president we don't like, or a governor, or a mayor, or whatever, then we fold our arms and just say, We don't have that right to blaspheme God's word in such a manner. That is not reverence. That is not the pattern that God sets forward for his people. And ultimately, every act of rebellion is a blasphemy of scriptures. If the word of God is truth, then live it. To do otherwise is to reject it. To speak that you believe it with your mouth and then live otherwise is hypocrisy. It is blasphemy. And so, Titus is told, tell the older women, while you're reverent, that you admonish the younger women. I love that Titus doesn't isn't told to teach the young women that of all the things they are to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, I'm reading chapter 2, verse 5, good, <laughs> I like that, just be good, obedient to their husbands, why? That the word of God may not be blasphemed. You want to demonstrate that you accept biblical authority in your life? Rather than reject it, it is evidenced by your life, not your doctrinal statement of what you believe. Because you only really believe not what you write down or speak. You only really believe what motivates you to live. Why do you live the way you live? Because of the traditions of men? Because of the moral fables of man? of wives and of Jews and of anyone else? Or is it because of the absolute authority of God's word? To live otherwise rejects the authority of the scriptures. And that is a serious matter. And it is a, one of the most powerful seeds I see going on in churches today there's no room, even in sermons today, for Scripture.
I grew up in a, not a pastor's home. Christian home, not a pastor's home. And I remember frequently hearing my father, as we drove home, a little upset. He said, that was a great skyscraper sermon. That was a skyscraper sermon today. That was not an applauding statement. As a young person, I didn't, really young person, I didn't really always understand that. And then one day I remember asking him, he's like, oh, it's story after story after story. There wasn't any scripture. It's a skyscraper, story after story after story. No truth. He wanted to hear God's word. He didn't want to hear all the stories. And I think that's really influenced my preaching even now, 45 years later. That we recognize that what we need to hear from each other and what we need to be studying in our lives is God's word. Do not reject that authority in your life by putting it in some distant corner of your daily reading and study and entertainment And do not distance it from your moral guide that you follow. For you all follow some moral guide. Make it God's word. Don't reject it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you that your word exposes us. And it is in your word that there is hope and life and power and truth. Lord, help us to do more than just say so. Help us to live it. To be obedient to your word. And also, Lord, to speak it into our own lives and into the hearts and lives of others as wonderful words of life. Lord, we thank you so much for it. And help us to accept its authority over us. With reverence and soberness, righteousness and submission. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.